course, if you're not able to remain standing, still take a Bible and turn to Psalm 119, page 516. If you want to use a Bible from the pew, you could just grab that in front of you and turn to page 516. Otherwise, Psalm 119, we're going to begin reading at verse 161 and read down through verse 168. This is the second to the last uh, study from Psalm 119. I got that wrong last week. I, I said we had three more left, but we only had two more left. So, but These are God's words for us this morning. And beginning in verse 161, this is what God says to us. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word like like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we know that there is no word like your word. And Father, our prayer now is that we, as we spend the next few moments considering this word of yours, that your spirit would help us, that, that our minds and our hearts, our eyes would be open to see wonderful things from your word, that you would, through your word, show us yourself, your son, your ways, that you would change us through your word. For all of these requests, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 119, all 176 verses of Psalm 119 underscore to us, emphasize before us something of the functional and practical value of God's Word in the life of a follower of Christ. We've, we've looked at this Psalm 119 eight verses at a time. That's just the natural structure of Psalm 119. It coincides with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so there's 22 units that comprise these 176 verses. We are now at the second to last unit in Psalm uh, 119. And while each unit says something to us about the value of God's Word, each unit also had its own emphases or theme as it pertained to God's Word. And and this particular eight-verse unit, I would suggest to you the, the theme that runs through uh, verses 161 through 168 are, are just how the Word of God is to intersect with the affections of our heart. Now, let me, 
let me dive in. Before, before I do dive in to look at what this passage says, let me just briefly differentiate. This might be helpful. Uh, uh, the, the difference, at least as I understand it, between our emotions and our affections. Certainly, uh, affections um, uh, pertain to our overlap, our intersect with our emotional feelings, but our affections are not the same thing as our emotional feelings. Affections involve emotional feelings, but they are not defined by or determined by our emotional feelings. Affections are strong convictions of the heart. Affections are, are um, uh, intense inclinations of the heart that are informed by our thinking and give rise to our actions. In fact, I know this could be an oversimplification, but emotions are really um, uh, informed by not so much our own thinking about something, but they're informed by um, uh, that which is external to us. So if if there's something external to us that is a threat to us, then we correspondingly feel certain emotions. There's nothing wrong with emotions. They're not inherently flawed. We were, we were made by God in His image uh, to have emotions. And, and, and yet where emotions and affections differ is that our emotions oftentimes can impede careful thinking, whereas our affections or a way of feeling, if you would, that are in harmony with good thinking. So, let's dive into it. Two things I want to talk about. Uh, First half, the first four verses, I want us to look at something of the interior aspect of our affections, cultivating affections for God's Word. And then the second four verses uh, deal with some of the more outer aspects, and I'll call that conveying affections for or from God's Word. Let's look at these one at a time. Verse 161, here's something of the context, and this is not new to us. Uh, the, the Psalm 119 has oriented us to the psalmist's difficulty and affliction and persecution on numerous occasions. But he orients us, it reminds us of that orientation once again. Princes persecute me without cause. That's his situation He is being uh, poked and pressed by people in authority, i.e., like Daniel, if you would, in the Old Testament. He is being harangued and harassed by people who have great power over him to inflict real harm upon him. That's his situation. Now, To help us to differentiate further, what I'm trying to say about emotions is when you are in a dangerous situation, when someone of great power is trying to poke and press you, when someone of great authority is trying to harangue and harass you, then then you begin to feel something, Just, just like an innate response to your situation, to our situation, could be fear could be anger, could be worry. Those are, in that sense, they're very helpful barometric indicators. 
There are warning lights on the dashboard. Something's wrong with my world. But those are emotions that are in response to uh, the threat or to the danger. And, and those, if that threat or that danger lingers, then, then those entry points of fear and anger and worry, they can give rise to uh, despair. When, when the threat lingers, despair then becomes uh, a, an emotion that is so common to us. Or bitterness can hover and fester. So that's where the psalmist is living. I, I, I wonder what James Coates is feeling this morning. James Coates is a, a pastor from Alberta, Canada, and uh, he's been tossed in jail because of the heinous crime of not ceasing to preach the gospel. And, and, the, and the authorities have said, you can go the moment you promise to no longer preach the gospel to your church. Well, he's feeling something this morning. Maybe that's analogous to what the psalmist could be feeling in his own uh, position of persecution. And, and, yet, and yet, while we have the feelings that indicate uh, our response to our situation, we also are people who can cultivate affections. In the midst of our troubles and our difficulties. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. The psalmist is not giving his attention over to his distractors. Let them poke and press. Let them harangue and harass. That's what they do. They don't know God. All they've got is their power card. But the psalmist's attention is upon what God has said in his word. Thus, thus his attention is upon who God is. We'll see that more clearly when we get to verse 164. You see, regardless of our circumstances, in the middle of our tough circumstances, we can cultivate affections. Even if we are persecuted without cause, our hearts can stand in awe of God's word. And the next three verses give us if you would, three affections toward God, toward His Word, that we could cultivate even in the midst of our difficulty. In verse 162, uh, the first affection that the psalmist is cultivating while being wrongly wronged is he is cultivating joy. He says in verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoils. I'm happy. Oh, I'm harangued. I'm harassed. But I have your word. Now, is this a guy out of touch with reality? I mean, wake up, dude. People in power are persecuting you. 
people are pressing in on you. He's like, wake up and be controlled by your emotions. No, he's, he's not being controlled by his emotions. I'm not minimizing his emotions because he's too busy uh, cultivating affections toward God and his word in the midst of it. He's not out of touch with reality. The reality is that this universe would not exist had God's word not spoken it into existence. At the heart of the universe is a father who loves the son in the joy and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this triune God has spoken all things into existence that exist. And not only has he spoken and gotten them started, but he sustains all things by the power of his word. Even being persecuted wrongly by princes is still under the sovereign sway and supervision of God in accordance to his word. And he likens this joy that he's finding in God's word in the midst of his difficult circumstance as like one who uncovers great spoils. (laughs) You won't believe what I just unearthed. I mean, the, the, the very mood here is this guy's on a quest. And, 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 just stands to reason if you've ever read any great book or novel or literature about a quest, a quest involves danger. But the mere reality and presence of danger seldom thwarts a good quest because a quest is searching for something. And for God's people, we have this marvelous opportunity to be on a quest to find great joy in who God is and in what he has said. This is not being out of touch with reality. This is living in light of God's rendition of reality, which is the only true, real uh, version of reality. Verse 163, a second affection that he is cultivating. He says in verse 163, I... Hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. The the psalmist is cultivating settled convictions in regard to God's word. In other words, his, his affections are rooted in truth. The psalmist understands that joy is found in truth, in the Word of God. The psalmist understands that the the Word of God is the standard. It's the standard of what is good and what is bad. It's the standard of what is ugly and what is beautiful. It's the standard of what is true and what is false. It's the standard of what is right and what is wrong. And what I want you to see is that that, that our, our, our love for God's Word is is and, and therefore by consequence of love for God's word our disdain or abhorrence or hatred for that which is in contradiction to God's word is what sustains true a true sense of his love and convictions oh 
our culture, it loves to use the word love. But seriously, does it have any idea of what it is really talking about? It's, it's sad. Part of the way our culture defines love is that, is that love is untethered from that which is true or false. That's the way our culture sees it. And it, the Word of God. So, for instance, in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. You see, if, if we're to have any sort of sane definitions or descriptions of what love looks like and consists of, we have to couple that. We can't untether that from. We have to couple that with a discussion of what is good, what is bad, what is ugly, what is beautiful, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. The false way never leads to true love. The the, the ugly way never leads to true love. The the bad way never leads to true love. We, We have to understand that's the dot that the scriptures connect for us and yet, and yet those are the dots that are culture and God help us to not be influenced by our culture in that regard a third thing a third affection that the psalmist touches on that he cultivates is in 164 where he now in a sense makes the transition sort of, he gets back to it from simply loving and finding delight in God's word to loving and finding delight in God he says in 164 seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules I would suggest to you that the statement seven times a day is really kind of a figure of speech. It's not as though he has like a little, uh, little tick mark that he marks on his hand. Okay, th- that's the first one today. That's the second one. Okay, now I've reached seven. Now I can quit praising God. It's really a figure of speech that throughout, throughout his day, throughout his day, he operates with, oh, God, help us to, to know this. Throughout his day, he operates with a conscious awareness of God's presence in his life. And since there's a nearness to God in his life, there's a constant responsiveness back to the presence of God in his life of worship. In other words, he's being persecuted by princes. And he's having a personal worship experience. Because his delight is in God's word because his love is in the truthfulness of God's word. He is he is on a quest. He is experiencing settled conviction, convictions, and 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 the and then and then he cultivates a sense of worship for God. What has changed circumstantially for him? Well, from what we see, nothing's changed. He's still being persecuted in 164 by princes without cause. Oh, and yet he can feel the nearness of God in his life. And his heart is filled with adoration and praise, extolling the greatness and the grace of his God. Well, that's some of the interior stuff that's going on with him. And now now the transition, the next four verses kind of like bump that out. He's not so much cultivating um, uh, these uh, inward affections, but he's now conveying with, with an outward sense of these affections that he's cultivated. And so in 165 through 168, we see something of the outward expressions 
of how when we cultivate affections in the interior part of our heart and lives, uh, what's on the inside seeps out. 165, the first expression of when we cultivate uh, affections toward God and toward His Word, even in the midst of our trouble, the, the first thing that we get to experience and express is peace. Great peace, 165, have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Peace, connecting the dots here, is derived from loving what is true. Peace is derived from cultivating a joy uh, in God's Word. Peace here is, is the outward uh, result of worshiping God who is near to us. Peace, uh, he says, is um, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. This is, a, this, this is no, this peace here is no mere psychological phenomenon. It is a spiritual reality that settles in our souls because of the affections that we cultivate toward God's Word. The outgrowth of those cultivated affections is a a settled state upon our soul that is labeled peace. It shapes, that peace shapes our way of looking at and evaluating our circumstances. In other words, we could be in the middle of unpeaceful circumstances and have peace. On the one hand, we don't do that. What we do do is we seek to cultivate affections toward God and His Word. And when we cultivate affections toward God and His Word, then out pops this critter called peace. Peace is not the cessation of hostilities or difficulties. But peace is that inward sense of God's presence that comes near to us and alongside of us and sustains us as we trudge through our difficulties and our hostilities. At present, regardless of our situation, peace can be what we experience. Second expression of cultivating that we can convey as a result of cultivating affections toward God and His Word is in verse... Oh, let me, let me go back to... And nothing can make, nothing can make them stumble. I'm sorry, I, I left over that. So, when you and I cultivate our affections toward God and His Word, then when life unfolds the way that you and I don't want it to unfold, when, when life unfolds the way that you and I wish it wouldn't unfold... Listen, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a very happy and content baby as long as, as, my, as I'm burped, I'm fed, and my diaper is changed. You're not going to get much fuss out of me in life if you, find, if you just keep me in that state. But that's not realistic, especially for a 59-year-old guy, you know. What, what, what do we do when life takes a trajectory that that's not what I planned? 
That's not where I wanted to go. That's not what I wanted to experience. Do you see how powerful this inner sense of peace is? Nothing can make us stumble. When our peace is rooted in the cultivation of affections toward God and His Word, then we're dealing with something that is durable. This is not fleeting. This is not a pansy peace. This is a peace rooted in the very robust abilities of the grace of God itself. Now, going to 166. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and, 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 I, and I do your uh, commandments. I hope. So we've got peace is, is the first expression of what we get to convey and experience when we cultivate affections for God's word, and, and we get to experience hope. Uh, peace is really a present phenomenon. Hope is, is, is how we would regard and, and, and project the future. And, and hope, when the Bible uses the term, is not hope maybe as we often maybe kind of, I hope that turns out good for you. In other words, hope is not mere wishful thinking. Hope, 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 hope it turns out good for you. But, but hope, biblically defined, is, is, um, is a confidence, great confidence, real confidence that God will do all that he's promised it's a sense of assurance in regard to the future. I'm confident of this. I'm not very confident about myself and my abilities as we move forward. But boy, you put God in this factor. You put God on the record about what's going to happen in the future. And that's something you can bank on. That, that's the biblical sense of hope. That's a surety that uh, it's going to get worked out the way God has written up the plan. And that's the sin. So the psalmist says, princes, princes are harming me, persecuting me without cause. And, and yet, while they won't relent, I have peace at the moment. While they won't relent, I'm confident of where this is going. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to know that, that God has put himself on record that says that nothing, nothing, how much? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And then in the passage in Romans 8 where I'm deriving that from, he, he lists a whole sort of things. Uh, uh, principalities or powers, uh, which is what's got a hold of Daniel or the psalmist here in this moment. But, but I don't care how, how strong or robust a, a, a governmental official thinks he might be. He only has power that has been derived from the God who has granted that to him. And when God says, that's it. That's it. That's enough. Then it's gone. It's nothing. Then we're back directly in God's hands. Because even the most heinous rulers in this world are in God's hands. He has the heart of the king, the proverb says, is in his hands. He can turn it whichever way he wishes. This is our God. And so when we talk about hope, we're not thinking, boy, I sure hope this thing works out the way the book of Revelation says it will. This is us saying, do you see, did you read the end of the book? Did you see that we get to live in a new heavens and a new earth? Do you see that God is going to come down and dwell with us? Do you see that things like sin and sorrow and suffering and all that yucky stuff has been vaporized? 
Do you see that that's our destiny? Do you, in other words, we, we, we can live in that sense of hope, and yet there's a caveat here that goes, oh, oy vey, I hope for your salvation and I do your commands. Tethered to his confidence that God will do what he's promised is his own commitment to do what God has ordered. In other words, the Bible is not a smorgasbord of, I kind of like those promises parts. They're sweet. But those command parts, I mean, they really grate me. I wish God would rewrite that section, that whole thou shalt not thing. Uh, so, so 15th century B.C. No, this is, this is, this is not a split-up deal here. The, the very grace that gives us the hope to be confident in God's promises is also the very grace that God gives to give us an inclination, a desire to want to obey the command sections of God's word. And this is where the gospel speaks a beautiful word to us. Because on the one hand, if, if we were to get right down to it, if your hope is rooted in your ability to perfectly obey God's commands, you and I... As Paul would say in Ephesians 2, we are a people, or Peter would say in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you and I are a people without hope. That's right. That was it. If God says, now look, all you got to do is perfectly obey me, and I'll take care of your future forever. You can just be confident in that. And be like, well, that's a good offer, but boy, I just... The prospects of me fulfilling my end of the bargain just ain't all that hot. You see why it's so needed that we keep as front and center of our life together who Christ is and what he has done. The gospel promise is that when Jesus became a man and dwelt here on this earth, he did it. He obeyed God flawlessly and perfectly. There was never a misstep, whether it's in the way he thought, the way he talked, the way he felt, the way he lived. He he fulfilled all righteousness. He rendered a, a life of complete obedience to God's commands. If there is only one person on the face of this earth who has an innate guarantee of confidence in God's promises, it is Jesus. And yet the gospel says that you and I get to jump into the middle of that. For that Jesus went to the cross after having lived a perfect life and he died as a perfect sacrifice on behalf of people like you and I who can't get it right on our own. He laid himself out on the cross after rendering himself a life of perfect obedience. He died as a perfect sacrifice, taking our sin and bearing up under its curse, its judgment, bearing up under the very wrath of God and absorbing that in himself, thereby abating the wrath of God from all who would be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you want hope about the future glories of a new heaven and a new earth, they begin by turning to Christ and trusting only in Him. And out of trusting in Christ 
and, on, and only in him, then I'll just collapse 167 and 168, the third and final expression from this passage of how we, uh, when we cultivate affections for God, then we convey affections for God and his word. And the affections here are really, it's the same thing, obedience to God's word. My soul, verse 167, my soul, and I think he says their soul there because this is not just an exterior uh, superficial obedience. This is a heartfelt, heart-oriented obedience. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies. All my ways are before you. See, he has found great delight in God's word. He rejoiced in God's word. He has, he has settled convictions of love for what God has said in his word. And that's given rise to a sense of, of inward praise to God for he sees God's perpetual presence in his life. And he always has opportunity to respond to that presence by praising God wherever he's at, whatever he's doing. That's given him a peace. And that's given him a hope. And now those are the engines that drive him to say, and I want to follow hard after this God. I want to obey him. I want to just not know what he says. I want to do what he says. Why? Because this is how he ends. All my ways are ever before you. In other words, I am always under your watchful care. I think that is meant to be a comfort here in this context. Remember, what's the context? Henri princes are persecuting him without cause. And yet, no prince lays a hand on the psalmist without the watch care eye of our heavenly Father who is always near to his children. And that nearness is certainly a comfort to us, but that nearness is also a catalyst to say, so I want to be alert to what he is telling me to do in his word. And I want to be dead serious about doing it. May this week be a week filled with great affections toward God and his word. Affections that come to us because Jesus has come for us. Look to Christ. And this week live a life cultivating affections for what God's word has said to us. Not only as to how we should live, but as a reminder of how Christ has lived and how he has died and how he was raised and how he is interceding for us and how he's coming again for us. May our hearts be happy with these realities. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word says to us and speaks to us. Father, we give you praise that we're not on our own in this life. We're not left to our own ingenuities and schemes and devices. Father, we are in your hands. And Father, no matter what our circumstance might be, and I don't say that to minimize what some are going through and experiencing, Father, we're thankful that we have access into your presence because of Christ. So may we know Christ this morning and may we grow deeper in our knowledge of Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're